Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father Adam covers the Sixth and Ninth Commandments, paragraphs 2331 to 2400 and 2514 to 2532. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we continue part three of the catechism. We're, um, we're coming towards the end. There'll be one more session, I think, um, after this. But today we're going to hit the sixth and the ninth commandments, which are traditionally paired, paired together, the sixth and the ninth. So even though it is, it's always kind of my goal to just go all the way through, we're going to jump the seventh and eighth commandments and and cover them next time and just deal with the sixth and ninth now and then we'll do the tenth with the other two because there is some connections with the tenth to the other two as well at least to the thou shalt not steal one so we begin with the sixth commandment which is in 2331 paragraph 2331 in the catechism again with with all of the commandments, um, the catechism gives us both the, um, the, what was revealed to Moses in the Old Testament, and then also how Christ gives the, fuller revela- the fullness of revelation, in, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. So we hear from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, or Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. That's the sixth commandment. Um, the Lord in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the Lord gives us this, the fullness of revelation in his teaching. So the catechism um, covers this, this um, kind of distinguishes this sacrament in um, three part, uh, four parts, excuse me. The first one, first part of this, um, of this commandment, deals with sort of the foundation for the commandment. That what, what is this protecting? And it's particularly protecting... Um, the dignity of human sexuality and the the dignity of the human person as male and female. The second part is going to deal with chastity. And the catechism is going to give us a really good, succinct definition of chastity and then the violations thereof of chastity. The third part is going to look at marriage, especially the love of husband and wife, what that entails, the goods of marriage we, we traditionally talk about. And then the fourth part are offenses against the dignity of marriage. So this commandment governs essentially two things. First of all, the dignity of the sexual act, the marital act, is kind of the way that we say it in homilies. If you ever hear that phrase, marital act, it means the conjugal act. But because if you say sex in the in the in a homily people don't want to listen or kids get jittery parents get jittery so that's sort of the euphemism that homiletics um will teach you is the marital act is is that's what what we're saying of course you know we euphem we euphemize ourselves to death you know the other thing that this thing is protecting is the dignity of is marriage to the the union of union of man and woman so of course, those things are inseparable. Um, the marital act and marriage um, are inseparable. So, um, but this 
there is sort of a kind of a distinction between that. So we proceed um, looking at really the, the dignity of, of the sexual act. It's interesting, the first time I ever taught this section of the catechism, my parents were in, were in the class, you know. This is when I was a freshman in college, and I was teaching this section, and my parents were in the class. So I had to explain to them the various morality of the sexual act, which is, was somewhat awkward, to say the least. <laughs> so anyway, the, um, we proceed just for that, that little side note. But So um, the catechism will first... You know, it, it, it evokes the creation of male and female. You know, so from Genesis, you know, this idea of um, the human person as a sexual being is, is presented. God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. So somehow, part of our being in the image and likeness of God, which is at, you know, is one of those eight elements of our dignity, the source of our dignity, includes being male and being female. Even though God is without gender, being male or being female is somehow a participation in the image of God, image and likeness of God. Um, and so then in the catechism, and the catechism gives us a lot of really wonderful definitions in this section. Um, and I think it, it is as we converse with others within the church and without the church, I think it's good to keep these definitions in mind because it helps us to clarify terms and things like that. Um, but the Catechism defines sexuality. What is sexuality? Sexuality affects all aspects of the human person in the unity of his body and soul. So our sexuality is not just a bodily thing, but it's also of the soul. It concerns affectivity, our capacity to love and to procreate. And so then the Catechism says that really every man and woman should acknowledge and accept their sexual identity, his or her sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarity are oriented towards the goods of marriage and family. So in this, this idea of sexuality is, um, one, part of it is, is that we, part we have a unique sexuality, whether one be male or whether one be female, according, you know, accordingly to what um, some people would say gender, what we normally refer to as sexes. But the, it's interesting that we should, the, the catechism says that we should acknowledge and accept his sexual, our, one's sexual identity. Which, you know, of course, in, in pop, pop, popular language, sexual identity means something else. Particularly in the in the church's understanding and in the catechism, sexual identity is what pop, popular psychology might call gender. But of course, now popular psychology has thousands of genders, so we can't even really use that. So, a male sexuality versus a female sexuality. Um, but, and I think that that's an a, a, key, a key point is that. Um, in the new life in Christ, which this whole cat this whole part of the catechism is about, um, really, and 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 really accepting and acknowledging one sex that one has a sexuality is crucial. Um, I think so often um, religion in general, and maybe even Catholicism, is depicted by popular popular culture as if you know we repress the sexual, one sexuality. Um, and the catechism is emphasizing that we acknowledge and accept this. The catechism then says in 2334 that male and female, in creating them, he creates them with equal personal dignity. 
A lot of this, of course, you know, because the catechism is so interconnected, this refers back to the section on creation in the creed. It also refers back, again, to the sacrament of marriage in the second part of the catechism. So it's interesting um, just how, you know, when one, has, when one wants to understand the church's understanding of sexuality um, and what it means to be male or what it means to be female, you can't just look to one part of the catechism. You have to read the first part of the, you have to read the first part on creation and the human person. You have to read the part on marriage. You have to read the part on the sixth and the ninth commandment. And it, it is so often the case with all the other different parts. Um, the catechism proceeds, each of the two sexes is an image of the power and tenderness of God with equal dignity, though in a different way. The union of man and woman in marriage is a way of imitating in the flesh the creator's generosity and fecundity. Fecundity is a word that we're going to hear a lot. It means fruitfulness. Um, so I think what's really um, powerful in that is being a male or being a female, there's an equal dignity, but it's an equal dignity expressed in different ways. And it's a share in God's image of power and tenderness um, in different ways, with equal dignity. The union of man and woman in marriage um, imitates, it is in a sense an image of, in the flesh of God's own generosity and fruitfulness. So the the thing that is distinctive about male and female, now I wouldn't read the catechism as saying that male sexuality is power and female sexuality is tenderness. It's really a combination of both for each. Um, but so don't let us not read that as if power and tenderness are the you know the distinguishing qualities of the two. But rather that whatever it means to be male, whatever it means to be female. Um, is this sort of mixture of power and tenderness which points to God and how God operates in creation through his own his own almighty power, the, the act of creating, and then also the act of sustaining and loving that creation. Um, ultimately, I think what it leads us to is the, um, the source of, and not to go too in-depth, but the the thing that is distinctive about male sexuality and the thing that is different you know distinct about female sexuality has something to do with the marital the marital act itself um, the um then in 2336 the catechism again it points to it, and this has been the pattern all along we've talked about um, the really the establishment, how God for initially revealed this, and then in Christ, how there is this fuller revelation. Um, and it's we've already read the passage from the um, Sermon on the Mount. Then, so having established this sort of beginning point, um, what the kind of the Lord's view of the sexual act is from from the beginning. It then focuses, the catechism then focuses on the vocation to chastity. So, in both cases, the catechism is going to define, first of all, um, a, the dimension of the sixth commandment. So, in this, we just covered, it's defined really sexuality. And then it's going to look at how do we live that sexuality in this new way in Christ which also includes um, offenses against that. And then in the same way with marriage, we're going to look at God's kind of plan for marriage and then how marriage is lived in, in, this, in this life in Christ, including the violations thereof. So the vocation of chastity, we get a definition of chastity. It means... The successful integration of sexuality within the person 
and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. So chastity is this much more general. You know, we use it in so many different ways. But chastity in its, in its primary meaning is the integration of one's sexuality within, within their whole self. It is seen and lived um, when it is integrated into the relationship of one person to another in the complete and lifelong mutual gift of man and a woman. So we, we often do not think of chastity in the context of marital love. Um, we think of, well, it's one of the um, evangelical counsels chastity is. And therefore, we apply it to virginity, or you know, or to you know, consecrated life, or to cel- celibacy in the priesthood. But really, chastity primarily, we I would even say primarily, is seen in in the marital relationship. It involves the virtue of chastity involves the integrity of the person and the integrality of the gift. So. There is this sense of, of me having a healthy relationship with myself and then also um, one having a healthy relationship with the act itself. So first it, in, it deals with the integrity of the person. So we can't really live chastity what, regardless of our vocation, whether it's married life, priesthood, consecrated life or whether one is in this temporary state of being single um, one cannot live chastity unless they have an integrity the integrity of the person the integrity of the powers of life and love placed in them the catechism will say which means an avoidance of a double life and duplicity in speech And then the catechism goes on with some points of really how do we live this integrity, um, this personal integrity. Well, first of all, and, and it's interesting, all of these touch upon those first eight articles that dealt with the dignity of the human person. So all of those eight elements that we looked at that are kind of the foundation for our dignity, they're all, t- they're all to different degrees touched upon in this section. So if we want to have a a personal integrity, this integrity of the person, the catechism says, we have to be be living the the foundations of our dignity. So first of all, um, this integrity, it it involves a training of our passions. Um, The catechism talks about an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. Um, And that... Is in, that's an interesting phrase, this uh, apprenticeship and self-mastery. That's, like, that's clear John Paul II language. So he uses that in the theology of the body. He uses it in this really important document called the Krakow um, document, which was, so John Paul II was on the commission for Humanae Vitae to write that um, to kind of advise Paul VI on that document, the encyclical Humanae Vitae, which was on contraception. So um, John Paul, when he was a cardinal in Krakow, was on that commission. However, the communists would not let him go to the meetings because they were just, you know, not because they had an issue with the document. It was just they were communists and they liked to cause trouble. So, um, so instead, what John Paul II did is he he formed this group to advise him, and he wrote a document, and he sent it in. And that theme of self-mastery is already in that document. Um, so this, that's, this idea that we grow in a self-mastery and a training of how we exercise our freedom. So, we, you know, the, um, the proper use of our passions and kind of, integ- you know, what I would say is respect for our passions. It's not a suppression of passions, but it's a training of passions is part of our dignity. The catechism also says man's dignity, therefore, requires him to act out of a conscious and free choice 
as moved and drawn in a personal way from within and not by blind impulses. This touches upon that other foundation of our dignity, which is the, the human act that we can make, we can kind of govern our actions. Looking at um, the object of what we're doing, our intentions, the circumstances surrounding it, that we can make kind of a deliberate reflection on how we act. And this is part of the self-mastery. We also are reminded um, that part of the means of living this chastity and this integrity of our person is, first of all, a self-knowledge. Second, a practice of an ascesis or asceticism is... is adapted to the situations that confront us. So what sacrifices do we need to make? Um, obedience to God's commandments, exercise of the virtues, and fidelity to prayer. Those, those five, five things, one, two, three, four, five, um, those five, they're kind of the stones which the Lord gives us for chastity, we might say. Um, the the stones in order in order to um, to win victory. So we we hear about habit building good habit, which again is another foundational point of our of our dignity. The next paragraph talks about the virtue that it, this is connected to the virtue of temperance. Chastity is. And then also that this self mastery is a long and exacting work, that it takes a whole lifetime. A priest uh, once told us in conference, um, a spiritual, you know, he was an older priest, you know, he said, you know, people ask me, when does the struggle for chastity end? And the priest said, I think it's five minutes after you're buried. You know, so. <laughs> but, so it is, it's, it goes, you know, Chastity has laws of growth. There's a progression, you know. Part of that is self-knowledge to see from where we've come what's working, what's not working. It also entails a cultural effort. It's interesting, out of all of the commandments, um, this one, um, even, uh, you know, I, well, I should say all of the commandments that the Catechism dealt with, there's both this personal responsibility but then there's also a civil or a cultural responsibility we saw that with the fifth commandment you know that certainly like with just war and self-defense when we talked about punishment um, in society um, but even like uh, providing the basic needs for people you know for people um, so that they can their the the dignity of the of human life is protected in all of these different things there there was both a personal obligation but then also the it talked about the civil or societal order and the same with this um, the catechism in the sixth commandment frequently talks about not just our own personal obligations but also how the civil order should be kind of protecting some of these things. So there should be a cultural effort um, in protect in upholding chastity. And then finally, 2345th, just to hit one of those last foundational points of our dignity is grace is, is, is primarily needed. Chastity is a moral virtue, but it is, it's also a gift from God, a grace, a fruit of spiritual effort. So no matter how much we struggle with this self-mastery, and I think sometimes when we hear this phrase self-mastery and when we think of the sin of chastity, it, a lot of it is about controlling ourselves or what I can do, coming up with some strategy. But at the end of the day, in the end of this section, it's grace is, is what is the key. Um, I think in struggling um, with chastity, people can, you can fall into Pelagianism pretty easily and think that, well, all I need to do is do all these different things and then I'll, I'll be free from this. And then it doesn't happen. It is really, I think, the way that the Lord um, most delicately teaches us not to be Pelagians is, is through this.
through this sin. Um, the and and that you know of course you know people say I don't really believe this but they say that you know Paul when he talks about the thorn in the flesh that it's some sort of issue of lack of chastity I think that's I don't think that that's authentic you know there is nothing I've seen in that text to point to that I think it's you know I think it's some homilists that are you know imposing their own issues upon Paul but. Whatever it is, I mean, if that is the case, and I'll, so, you know, let me just kind of entertain their exegetical error, you know, but if that, if that is the case, then I think it might, you know, it, it would be fitting because that's probably how most of us learn not to be legalistic and not to be a Pharisee and not to be a Pelagian, that we think that we can somehow observe all of the rules and the laws by our own power. It's usually through a weakness in chastity that we learn that lesson. So, um, so but we proceed the integrality um, of the gift of self. So, you know, that... You know, we want to kind of give ourselves as this this great gift, and ch- and charity, chastity rooted in charity, I should say, is the way that we do that. So the root of all the f- the root the form of all virtues is charity. If we want to use, if we want to live chastity, we can say that the first what we've just covered are, is the strategy elements which ultimately end in grace, but the strategy elements of how to grow in chastity. Now, we're also reminded that it's not just this strategy, but a new approach to living, because that's what the Lord gives us in, this, in, in the commandments. And that the virtue of chastity blossoms in friendship. Chastity is expressed notably in friendship with one's neighbor, whether it develops between persons of the same or opposite sex. Friendship represents a great good for all. It leads to spiritual communion. Um, so I think, really, I mean, friendship is so important in general, but it really is, I think, um, an important. Um, an important element in chastity. It reveals chastity, a chaste heart, if one's able to engage in healthy friendships, um, especially with the opposite sex. But also I would say that um, chastity is built by friendships and also friendships with the opposite sex. I I think the tendency is, and maybe it's because... um, we take marriage and the complementarity of sexes um, so seriously that the relationship between man and woman is always kind of seen with a nuptial sense. And so therefore men can't interact with women and women can't interact with men without thinking about the possibility of marriage or having sex. But that's, that's the problem. What we need to do is start first of all with the sense of friendship. Begin with friendship. And maybe, maybe, um, you know, like this would be, I think, for single people, is, you know, maybe based on this friendship, then the, there's the possibility of a, of, a, of a nuptial connection. But it begins with friendship. And I think, I think we begin so often with the nuptial notion um, that we forget the friendship notion and you know, it's we talk. You know, everyone bemoans the sexual revolution, but we're all products of the sexual revolution. Um, you know, you can hate modernity, but you're still a person who lives in the modern age, who's been produced by modernity. Um, then there's various forms of chastity. The Catechism tells us all the baptized are called to chastity. Um, people should cultivate it chastity in the way that is suited to their state of life. Married people are called to live conjugal chastity. Um, Others practice chastity incontinence, which is the refraining from the marital act, because you're not open to the marital act. You know, you're not in a marriage. Those who are engaged to marry are called to live 
chastity incontinence. So wait, even though you, you are quite sure um, that this is the person that you're supposed to marry, so much so that they've put a ring on your finger and you're, you know, you've, you're making the plans to walk down the aisle, that still does not mean you're married, um, is, is what the catechism is gently saying, is even if you know that this is the person you're supposed to be married, which is probably, you know, I mean, if that's the problem, then I think engagement should be a whole lot shorter, you know. Um, but I have a, a whole lot of different thoughts on these things. So let's pr proceed. Then the Catechism talks about offenses against chastity, which is an important section. Um, what's interesting is the word grave is used quite a bit in this section, um, and it's, you know, we've talked about this before, um, the uh, parvity of matter, which is this phrase meaning that there's light matter and there's grave matter. Um, almost, I mean, almost in all cases, a violation of the sixth commandment is grave matter. Um, so first, lust, which is defined as a disordered desire for or inordinate enjoyment of sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. Um, the you know, and I think um, you know the key is the you know the unitive um, and procreative purposes of marriage. The um, then the next is thirty-two fifty-two masturbation, which is defined as understood as the deliberate stimulation of the genital organs in order to derive sexual pleasure. Um, they give these nice clinical definitions to these things, which is is good when your parents are sitting in the room, you know. Um, it's mentioned that it's intrinsically and gravely disordered action. What's interesting is that in all of these offenses, the catechism gives the logic behind it. And the logic behind it is the, the marital act, the sexual act exists for two purposes. The union of spouses and the procreation of children. And, you know, the, and it's not just the sexual act, but sexual pleasure which surrounds the act and one's sexuality. It, so it's all we have to see our sexuality geared towards that. We see the act geared towards that, and the association of pleasure geared towards that. The sexual relationship, which is demanded by the moral order, and in which the total meeting of mutual self-giving and human procreation, in the con context of true love, is achieved. That's the Catechism's explanation of sexual pleasure. That it's it's really there to reinforce the mutual self-giving and the good of procreation. But the Catechism um, has an it's not a numbered paragraph, it's a section, a second part of this paragraph on masturbation, which talks about five conditions um, that might reduce one's responsibility. If you remember, um, they use the word culpability here. Um, the idea of, it is grave matter regardless, it's grave matter. But, it, there may be um, an issue of responsibility. And so the five elements, first of all, is affective immaturity. So is this, you know, some juvenile, you know? Second is force of acquired habit. Now, of course, habits begin with initial acts that one's, one is responsible for. Second, conditions of anxiety. So there are certain, and that's not just, oh, I worry and therefore, you know, but there are certain anxiety disorders that, that are probably behind this. Other psychological or social factors that can lessen, we're told, or even re reduce to a minimum the moral culpability. The uh, next is, 
the next kind of offense against chastity is fornication, which is defined as the carnal union between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman. Um, again, it's, gra- it's mentioned as gravely um, contrary to the dignity of the persons and human sexuality because it's, um, it's not ordered towards the good of spouses. These two are not spouses. So that full unity is not there. It's also generally um, and probably almost universally um, also contrary to the generation and education of children, which the catechism we'll talk about later um, ought to happen within the marital act, within the marital union. Children have a right to be born of a mar- to be conceived and born of a marital marital act and marital union within a marital union. Pornography, um, which ca- um, is defined as um, consists in removing real or simulated sexual acts from the intimacy of the partners in order to display them deliberately to third parties. It offends chastity because it perverts the ch- conjugal act the intimate giving of spouses to each other. It immerses, and and I think another issue, it it immerses all who are involved in the illusion of a fantasy world. And the the catechism says it's a grave offense, again, grave matter. Um, But I think um, this idea of illusion of a fantasy world, so that one's not really living in reality, which I think is a good antidote to um, sins of unchastity in general is live in real what the reality the reality is is that these acts are meant between someone that you're married with and that's going to be open to having children it does do grave injury to the participants and I think that's another thing to keep in mind is you know there's a what what would we would almost say like the sex trafficking trade is very much connected to the porn industry um, and the very next section deals with the very next paragraph deals with prostitution prostitution is gravely um, sinful both for those who pay for it and those who participate in it um, it's a social scourge it usually involves women, but can with men, children, and adolescents. Um, it is always gravely sinful. Um, and then rape is also um, uh, 2356 mentioned. Then the catechism spends three paragraphs on homosexuality. So first of all, it defines homosexuality to relations between men or between women who experience an exclusive or predominant sexual attraction toward persons of the same sex. A couple important points, and and I think in all of these, in these three paragraphs, 2357 through 2359, it's worth reading, rereading, but, and you really kind of have to break it down into parts. Um, so as we do that, um, first of all, it has taken a great variety of forms throughout the centuries and in different cultures. The catechism doesn't deny that homosexuality has been present in different cultures and in different ages. Um, the argument of cultural relativism or that, you know, that, well, you know, animals do this or that different cultures have always done this does not m- mean that it's, you know, acceptable. Be- you know, prostitution has been present in every culture, every human culture. That doesn't mean it's acceptable, you know. Um, so then the the next point, which is I think is very important, um its psychological genesis remains largely unexplained. So we can't reduce homosexuality to just a choice and say, well, this is something they choose. It really is a complex mystery um, why people have this, a same-sex attraction. Same-sex attraction is normally the way that we, we express it because, one, it's non-judgmental, but two, it doesn't, necess- it doesn't root 
this orientation as their identity, which is, I think, is a crucial thing because um, we don't want to identify ourselves by one particular point, and certainly, you know, other than maybe being a child of the Father by baptism. Um, basing itself on sacred scripture, which presents homosexual acts as, grave, as a grave depravity, the tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They're, so homosexual acts are always intrinsically... This is what Revelation has given us. You know, It has been revealed. Why? Well, um, they're contrary to the natural law because of two things. First of all, they, they, you know, they keep one from the complementar the union that comes about from the complementarity of, of, of sexes. So the unity is lost. And second is that um, they, are, they, they are not open to the gift of life. So the two fundamental reasons for sexual sexuality, sexual pleasure, and a sexual act, um, they cannot produce. So under no circumstances can they be approved, the catechism says. Um, in this phrase, intrinsically disordered, means that, is, is an important phrase. So by the very definition of itself, of, of the act itself, intrinsically, like so it's, you know, what it is, it's disordered. It's not directed to where this, to where it should be going. So, you know, the very act itself is is misdirected. And, you know, they, they would say the same thing about, you know, masturbation, um, you know, and, and the other the other issues. So but then the catechism continues um, 2358. The number of men and women who have deep seated homosexual tendencies. So homosexual tendencies is how the catechism in, in American Catholic parlance, we've gone, we've kind of settled with same-sex attraction, but the catechism still goes with homosexual tendencies. It's not negligible, so there are quite a few out there. Now, what's, you know, you get, you know, you look at sociological studies, and it's all over the place, from two percent to twelve percent of the general population. Um, I don't think any self-respecting sociologist accepts anything more than three to four percent, and it's probably more likely under two percent. But what? A, but it's still it's still a significant number of people, you know, have this tendency. Which again, psycholo we don't we don't know what the we don't have a you know even science cannot has not produced a uniformed theory as to why some have this and some don't have this. Um, the inclination, which is objectively disordered. Now, this is, this, this, that line gets a lot of heat, probably um, more heat than um, the, um, or, or to use, as, as, the, as, as the youth say, um, more shade. You know, this, this, that phrase gets more shade than, even perhaps the capital punishment one paragraph. Um, this inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for most of them a trial. Objectively disordered. So this is not, you, the, the, you know, the, we're not saying in this, um, the catechism is not saying that, you know, there's something wrong with the person. First of all, it says this inclination is is objectively disordered because we it is true um, though the catechism um, may not explicitly say this 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 is true is that human beings are not intrinsically evil actions are intrinsically evil you know um, but the, this inclination is objectively disordered meaning um, the the you know its its object its you know to which the direction to which it's going is misdirected if you look at the human person 
um, male and female, there is this complementarity. We see it biologically, you know, we see it physiologically, um, and then even from divine revelation, it is it is proposed to us the complementarity of male and female. And so, therefore, this inclination is not as it as it should be going. That's what this means. I think some people are looking, um, you know, just because there's smoke doesn't mean there's a fire. You know, just because this is a a strong phrase, it doesn't, it's not talking about the persons in themselves. It's talking about the inclination. The inclination is, um, you know, from, you know, foundationally is misdirected, is, is how, is how we should, should understand that, that phrase. They, human, the, the persons with this inclination must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. And the catechism acknowledges that, that having that inclination um, is a trial, is a great trial for most of them. And then the catechism, every sign of unjust discrimination in this regard should be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. Um, you know, so 2358 is a crucial paragraph, I think. Um, you know, and I, I think especially in the way that we um, witness and evangelize in this, in this age and in this culture, um, then um, the catechism gives in the 2359 some help for those who may have this um, same-sex attraction. They are um, homosexual persons are called to chastity um, by virtue by the virtues of self-mastery, which we talked about self-mastery earlier. Um, they they really learn this inner freedom. They don't allow this inclination, this one inclination to kind of dominate their life, to control their life. Um, this is supported by um, the support of disinterested friendships. You know, Courage, which is this wonderful organization that, that kind of helps support those with same-sex attraction. You know, there is a, a danger for those who have same-sex attraction a, a risk, maybe, or a diff I would just say a difficulty um, with having relationships with people of their own gender, because again, you know, we we become overly sexualized by the sexual revolution. So instead of seeing people from the context of friendship, it's automatically seeing them within the con concept of this sexual, you know, construct. Um, and so that's hard, but. Um, you know, but friendships with both um, males and females help those with same-sex attraction. It's it's a crucial support. Prayer and sacramental grace um, also support them on this. The catechism then shifts to the love of husband and wife, and a lot of this has been repeated um, in the section from the section on marriage. Um, but ultimately, sexuality is ordered to the conjugal love of man and woman within marriage. And that paragraph 2360 kind of gives us this nice little succinct understanding of this, that in physical intimacy, the spouses become a sign and a pledge of spiritual communion. Marriage bonds between baptized persons are sanctified by the, sac by the sacrament. Sexuality is not something simply biological, but concerns the innermost being of the human person. Um, the marital act, or the acts in marriage, as the catechism will say, um, by which the intimate and chaste union of the spouses takes place are noble and honorable. The truly human performance of these acts fosters a self-giving. They signify and enrich the spouses in joy and gratitude. 
2363 is probably the most important of that section, and it says the spouse's union achieves a twofold end of marriage. There's a twofold end of marriage. Sometimes we call these um, the goods of marriage. So the first is the good of the spouses themselves, sometimes called the good of unity or the good of the mutual giving of the spouses. And then second is the transmission of life. These two meanings of values of marriage cannot be separated without altering the couple's spiritual life. You can't separate the unity and goods of the spouses from the transmission of life. They're both essential to the definition of the marital act. They're both the purpose for sexuality, sexual pleasure, and, and the sexual act. Thus, the conjugal love of man and woman stands under the twofold obligation of fidelity and fecundity, or fruitfulness. So then the Catechism talks about fidelity, um, and then it talks about fruit, the fruitfulness of marriage. Um, I think, you know, fidelity, it, it talks about fidelity in two paragraphs, um, and I, I don't think there's anything you know, too difficult in those. The fecundity of marriage or the fruitfulness of marriage, it does deal with in a little bit um, longer treatment. Um, so it talks about the that fecundity is a gift and end of marriage or, you know, what its, what its purpose is, what it's directed towards, the, the goal of marriage. Um, and this fruitfulness springs from the mutual giving. So, um, you know, when a, when a husband gives himself completely to his wife and a wife completely gives himself herself to her husband in the marital act, it is, it is a total gift of self, body and soul and everything, including, including um, fertility. Um, in that complete gift of self, which is why sometimes we call the, the gift of unity or the good of unity the good of the mutual giving. What, because of that complete gift of self, then something new comes about from that, a fruitfulness, namely procre the good of procreation. And so if you break... If you break something, so, so for instance, if the husband does not give his entire self, maybe he holds back his fertility, or the wife holds back her fertility. It's not a complete gift of self. So in ruling out the possibility of the fruitfulness, you've also ruled out the perfect and full gift of self. So you can't have one without the other. A violation of one violates the other. And you know, and even you know, even say you know, in the case where there's no full unity, a couple's not married, or um, whatever it might be. You know, there may be there may be the possibility of even mental infidelity within the marital act. There is, I mean, some moral theologians talk about that possibility. Um, you know, so even you know if. Even if a child is to come about, if there's not that complete giving of self, there's something wrong. That's why those two things, the complete giving of man and woman to each other and the gift of life, the openness to life, um, openness to procreation, um, those two, um, if we can wrap our minds around this, you can explain all Catholic sexual morality from that. Because everything that is wrong you know, that is an offense, somehow violates those two things. It somehow separates. It makes defective one and then excludes the other. Um, the Catechism then says that really um, this role is, is how man and woman uniquely cooperate in the creative, the creative power and fatherhood of God the Catechism says. They cooperate with the love of God the Father. 
Now, then in 2368, the Catechism says, a particular aspect of this responsibility concerns the regulation of procreation. For just reasons, spouses may wish to space the birth of their children. So in, this, in, in upholding this truth that the procreative, the fruitfulness, and the union, unity can't be separated. In upholding this, the, the catechism doesn't say that parents can't regulate procreation, space out births. For just reasons, they may. And then it is their duty to make certain that their desire is not motivated by selfishness, but in conformity with the generosity appropriate to responsible parenthood. You know, because of the stresses, uh, financial, emotional, mental, physical, whatever it might be, um, there may have to be a spacing out of, of, of children, you know. A regulation of procreation, it says. In fact, the Catechism um, quotes this. How it says, moreover, they should conform their behavior to the objective criteria. So, if you are going to space out children, then it needs to follow the objective criteria of morality. And the Catechism, it's interesting. Um, just to those who liked it, maybe dissent from the church's teaching. Um, the Catechism quotes the Second Vatican Council on this. This is not just from the doc, Humanae Vitae. This is from Vatican II, from Gaudium et Spes. But it must be determined by objective criteria. Criteria drawn from the nature of the person and his acts. Criteria that respect the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love. This is possible only if the virtue of married chastity is practiced with sincerity of heart. Okay. The council says. Um, one has to safeguard these two essential aspects. So for for really morally evaluating the spacing out of procreation, you have to evaluate, you have to really keep in mind those two essential aspects, the procreative and the unitive. And then the catechism proposes periodic continence, that is the methods of birth regulation based on self-observation and the use of infertile periods is in conformity with the objective criteria of morality. So, um, periodic continence upholds that spacing. Then the catechism um, talks about, and so the use of um, every act which whether in anticipation of the conjugal act or in its accomplishment or in the development of its natural consequences proposes whether as an end or as a means to render um, procreation impossible is intrinsically evil. So anything done before, during, or after the act to stop procreation is intrinsically evil. So contraception um, is, is intrinsically evil. It's grave matter. Then the Catechism talks about the gift of children. Children should be seen as a gift. Scripture emphasizes this. And really, nothing should be done um, out, outside of the marital act, um, the act between a married man and his wife, in order to bring about life. So the, the Catechism talks about um, surrogate uteruses, sperm donation, especially if it's outside of, of the marriage. But even if it is inside the marriage, it is still intrinsically evil. Why? Because um, of the integrity of the sexual act and its connection to procreation, the marital act. And its, um, but also that you know, children are gifts. They're not something that were owed, the catechism says. And that in cases of infertility, which is a heavy cross, the catechism, you know, points to, there's still spiritual fruitfulness and there's still adoption. There are still many, plenty of children in the world in need 
of a love, loving parents. Offenses against the dignity of marriage include adultery um, and, and divorce. The Lord himself talks about in Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 32, 19, 3 through 9, Mark chapter 10, verse 9, Luke chapter 16, verse 18, first, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, that, you know, marriage is permanent. Uh, between the baptized, a ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any reason other than death. However, separation may be permissible in legitimate areas, and civil divorce may be permissible in legitimate points, especially to protect the rights of children and parents. Um, however, contracting a new union, even if it is recognized by civil law, adds to the gravity of the rupture. The remarried spouse is then in a situation of public and permanent adultery. And so, you know, despite what pe people might think has happened in the last 10 years, um, divorce and remarriage is, is and always will be adultery. Um, in you know if if one is still in a public marriage with another you know even if it's divorced unless otherwise decreed we have to we have to presume that you're still in that marriage um, it can happen though that some spouses are innocent victims of a divorce decreed by civil law and then of course there's other things polygamy and incest a free or open union, sometimes it's called, where you can just share spouses. And then also the um, trial marriage, which was this idea that, well, we're not really going to be permanently married, but you know we're going to live marriage, and then we'll see if it works out. Well, that was, that's a, was an institution in some Western countries. But really what it's lived with culturally is what we call cohabitation, which is... Cardinal union um, is morally legitimate only when the definitive community of life between man and woman has been established. Human love does not tolerate trial marriages. It demands a total and definitive gift of a person to one another. So if you're ready to live, it, live with each other, then marry each other, you know, is, is the simple gist. If, and then just to kind of hit... Um, ever so quickly, the, la the tenth, the ninth commandment: "You shall not cover your neighbor's house." We're told, but in particular, um, "You shall not covet your neighbor's wife." Is what this applies to. The Lord says in Matthew 5:28, "Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart." You know, um, John in his first letter. First uh, John chapter two verse sixteen distinct, distinguishes three types of covetousness of the flesh, of the eyes, and pride of life. Uh, and so, therefore, the Catholic catechetical tradition has always split the coveting commandment into two: one about the flesh and lust, and the other one about possessions or more envy esque. The catechism. Um, connects this to concupiscence, which is this inclination to sinfulness. Um, we talked about this with original sin. It's one of the effects of original sin. It's not that by our nature we're sinful. It's that we're just inclined to sin. Um, the catechism gives a, a more succinct Thomistic definition of concupiscence. It's the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of human reason. So that this sense where our appetites are unruly. Um, and there is this, Paul even talks about this sense of warring between the flesh and the spirit, that we're in kind to this lust of the flesh. Well, the catechism proposes to us a purification of our heart, that we want to have um, this to be pure of heart, which the catechism says refers to those who have attuned their intellects and will to the demands of God's holiness. 
chiefly in charity, chastity, and sexual rectitude, love of truth, and orthodoxy of faith. So charity, chastity, and love of truth. That's what it means to be pure of heart. And of course, as the Lord promises us, the, the pure of heart will receive this vision of God. So how do we engage in this? Well, one, by the virtue and gift of chastity. Second, by a purity of intention, simplifying our vision, desiring God. Third is by um, a purity of, a vi- of the vision externally and internally by discipline. Fourth is by prayer. Um, and then the catechism talks about modesty, which is both for those who wear clothes, but also those who look upon those who wear clothes. So, you know, um, it is, um, the catechism mentions um, um, one sort of a way to understand modesty is um, an, an unveiling, you know. So either one, one vo- the person voluntarily unveils themselves, but then it's also how we look upon the other person, whether we're unveiling them. So much of the issue, it drives me crazy, is when um, you know people confess and they say they confess about the immodesty of other people, what they're wearing, when they're not dealing with the immodesty of their own eyes in not participating in the unveiling. I think we should, rather than bemoaning the immodest dress of others, we need to focus on the immodest gaze of our eyes is is our first task. But I wanted to end this section with um, a reference by Saint, a, a paragraph from St. Augustine in paragraph 2520. It's about prayer in regards to purity and um, I think with that with modesty. And, it go, and Augustine says this in his confessions. I thought that continence arose from one's own power, or I thought that chastity arose from one's own powers, which I did not recognize in myself. I was foolish enough not to know that no one can be continent, chaste, pure, modest, whatever you want to say, unless you grant it, you, the Lord, grant it. For you would surely have granted it if my inner groaning had reached your ears and I with firm faith had cast my cares on you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.